praise team for leading us on this day in which we've honored our graduates. And uh, I always enjoy having them be a part of our time of worship. Take your Bibles. Oh, by the way, before we get into the scripture, let me make a deal with you. I promise you I won't look at my watch. You don't look at your watch, all right? Fair enough? I mean, just keep it together. All right. We're... uh, we're a little off schedule today, but uh, there's a lot to be said, and uh, just bear with me as we do that, okay? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, uh, we begin uh, Jesus, or we continue in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at those Beatitudes, and then last week we looked at what many call the similitudes, uh, where Jesus said, you're salt and light. The Beatitudes are a part of, of our character The Beatitudes are not something we do in order to gain favor with God or do something to be right with God. They are what we are when we are in Christ. He builds into us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He builds into us a holiness that pursues after Him. And we could go on and on talking about those. Then He says what we are in the world. That's what we are in Christ. What we are in the world is we are salt and light. And it's more about who we are than what we do. We said that last week, that it's about we are to be lights that are shining. We are to be salt that is salty within the context of the world in which we live. Today, Jesus gives us some real insight in this passage. I want us to look at verses 17 through 20, some real insight into how he views certain things. Have you ever wondered, have you ever just really thought about, I wonder what Jesus' view of Scripture is? You know, in the Southern Baptist Convention, we had, a, had what they call the battle for the Bible back in the, the 1970s and 1980s where there was this great discussion over, is the Bible really inerrant? That is, is it without error? Is the Bible infallible? That means it cannot even error. It could not if it wanted to. It, or or is, it, is it just sort of an authoritative book that's written by men that you can kind of pick and choose what you want and believe what you want to believe and not believe what you don't want to believe? Or, or is there parts of it that are, are not as authoritative as others or is the whole of the Bible the authoritative Word of God? I mean, we discussed that. We fought about that. We argued about that for years. Have you ever wondered what Jesus thought about that? If you ever wonder how he viewed the scriptures, especially the Old Testament scriptures, which were the scriptures being used when he was on the earth, and if you ever wondered about how he probably thought about that which was in, 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 canonized after he passed from the earth, after he was resurrected and ascended back into heaven, how, and the apostles and, and others wrote those great books of the New Testament, and later they were, they were uh, verified to be canon, the, the canonical books of the Bible. Have you ever thought about what Jesus might have thought about that? Well, I think in this passage today, he tells us fairly clearly what he thinks about Scripture. And that's why I call this, this sermon this morning, The King, the Scriptures, and the Righteousness that Saves. Because from the very beginning, if you remember back when we first started this series, we looked at a verse back in chapter 4, verse 17, where it, uh, Matthew just records this. He said, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom manifesto. It's a statement about what it's like to be a part of the kingdom. What it's like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And have you ever realized as you read that book that the one who is speaking these words, the one who is preaching this sermon, the one who is instructing those who are around him, is not only the teacher, he's not only the rabbi, he's not only the one with the words of wisdom, but the one who is speaking this is the king. 
Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven about what, which he's talking. Later on, the scripture will say he's king of kings and lord of lords. And so we have here instruction about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, brought to us by the king of that kingdom. Folks, that's significant. That's important. And you need to hear him when he says it. Listen to what he says in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, your, your translation may say not a jot, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jot and tittle, yours might say, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what is Jesus' view of Scripture? Well, he starts out by saying in verse 17, I want you to understand that the law and the prophets, that is the, the consistency of the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what was just their Bible in Jesus' day, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Do not think that I came to do away with them. You know, that was one of the great accusations against Jesus. They said, oh, you're teaching the people to disobey Moses. You're, you're teaching the people to do things against what the, the Scriptures say. And Jesus said, no, I'm not teaching them that at all. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to destroy it. I didn't come to say, listen, don't ever listen to Moses again. Don't ever listen to the prophets again. He said, I came into this world for one specific reason, and that is to fulfill it. To fulfill what the law says. To fulfill what the prophets say. I didn't come to do away with them. I came that you might have a clear understanding. As a matter of fact, the rest of this whole chapter is going to be taking the law as it was expressed through Moses and going to amplify it, going to give it some content. The words there, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. The word fulfill is an interesting word. Some look at it to say he came to fulfill the prophecies of the prophets, and he did do that. From the very beginning, there were prophecies about the coming of Messiah. And they were very specific. All the way back to the garden, right after Adam and Eve uh, fell and, and went into sin and were cast from the garden, there was the prophecy made that to Satan, by God, you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. That's talking about the Messiah that is yet to come. And all through the Psalms, the, the wisdom literature, and all through the prophets, you have over and over and over again prophecies and I want, to, I want to say predictions, but that's not even a good word. Let's just stick with prophecies. Prophecies and statements about the coming Messiah. That as, as time came along, it really centered in on Christ and everything from his birth to his, to his death and burial and resurrection and everything about his life that was talked about in the Old Testament, in the Law and the Prophets, was fulfilled in him. He fulfilled the prophecies. And that's so true. But I really don't think that's the essence of what Jesus is talking about here. 
The word that's used here in the Greek for fulfill is a word that also carries with the idea of not just completing it, but also filling it up. Much like I, a little bit ago, came in here with a little bottle of water and I poured into my cup that was empty, that was void of any content, and I poured it and I, in essence, filled it up. Not all the way, but I filled it so that it would be good for me and useful for me when I need it in about three minutes. Okay, it's there, it's prepared, it's ready. It was filled up. One commentator said that, that what, uh, how he interprets this, and I think he may be right, is as you have an artist who will have a sketching on his board. He will be preparing to, to draw or to paint a beautiful picture and first he will sketch it and you'll have nothing but lines there. And then he comes back later and with his paints that are vivid and, and full of color, he takes that paint and he fills in those lines and a beautiful, radiant picture comes forth. The prophets and the law sort of draw the lines. They drew the parameters. They drew the lines for us. But when Jesus came, he added content to everything they said. And that's what he'll do in this chapter as we look in the next few weeks. He will add content to everything that the law and the prophets stated. I came not to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. So he says, I want you to understand this. I came in order that you might understand it more fully and see it more completely. There's another implicit thing here, I think, that I don't want you to miss. In order to be able to fulfill the law in the way Jesus is talking about fulfilling the law, there is the implicit understanding of his sinlessness. Understand that. You can't fulfill the law if you have sin in your life. Do you know that? That's why you can't fulfill the requirement of the law for yourself. That's why you can't try harder and, and work harder and say, I'm really going to do my very best to be good for God, and you fail every time because there is sin, not just the sins you commit, but there is indwelling sin that is a part of your nature that is there. And try as you may, you cannot live without sin. He did. And that's why he can say, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to live it out. I have come to demonstrate it before all men and fulfill it. And later we'll understand he came to fulfill it so that we could be beneficiaries of that fulfillment. So we can benefit from what he is doing there. So Jesus says, I'm talking about the scriptures here. I believe you need to understand the law and the prophets are important. But he goes on a little bit in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the jot, or the stroke, or stroke, smallest stroke, the tittle, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And you know what the jot and the tittle are? The word jot used there, or the smallest letter, is the, word, is the Hebrew letter yod. Yod is a letter that looks kind of like a comma in, a, in the English language. It's kind of the same shape, looks like it. I remember that from when I took Hebrew. That's about all I remember, but I do remember that part. It was just a little bit, little letter that looks like a comma. Now, we place a comma at the bottom of the text. The yod was actually a letter that was placed at the top. 
me, let me show you an example. If, you've got, if you're so blessed to have a Bible that is the true Word of God, take, uh, take your Bible and turn with to Psalm 119. Well, it be this, should be this way in your authorized King, King James Version. And it'll be this way in the later editions of the New American Standard. Why in the early ones they didn't put, it, put the letters in there, I don't know. But I don't know if you know about Psalm 119 or not, but some, Psalm 119 is a psalm that is really an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Every single section in that longest chapter in the Bible makes up uh, eight verses that correspond with a Hebrew letter. So that first section is the Aleph or the A. And every verse in that section, those eight verses, begins with the letter, uh, the, the Aleph in the Hebrew. It doesn't always translate out that way. But if you look over at about verse 73, on verse 73, you'll see Yod, Y-O-D-H. Now, some of you may just say that, but how many of you have a little Hebrew character out beside it there? Okay. See, that's the Yod. It's very insignificant. As a matter of fact, it's not, it's not at all indispensable. You can almost, you can leave out a Yod on many of the Hebrew words, and the word will still virtually mean the same thing. It'll be incorrectly spelled, and so a Hebrew teacher who's concerned about, like an English teacher would be concerned about proper spelling, it would be misspelled, but it would still not lose its meaning by just losing the yod. You could lose that without any problem. That's what the yod is. That's what the jot is. The smallest letter of the scripture. Then he says, or the stroke, that is the, uh, the tittle, if you will. If you'll take in that same psalm, uh, look over with me at um, verse 25. And just above verse 25, you will find the doleth. You see the doleth there? You see the lettering there? You may have to look on with a neighbor if yours doesn't have it. See the dollop? We'll turn over then to the resh over on verse 153. Do you see the resh? Now look back and forth at those two. If you're not real careful, they look very, very they look like the same thing, don't they? But now look at the dollop over above 25. Do you notice there that on the very top corner on the... Uh, letter just out to the right there's just a little extension there that's not found over on the uh, the resh the resh makes a curve there the the uh, the dalith makes a little mark just extends out minutely but let me tell you in hebrew that little minute thing cost me more a's on test in seminary than anything else in my hebrew class because you get to reading quickly and you, you notice that it's, uh, it looks pretty much the same. You choose one over the other. It's only because that, that little old bitty pen stroke, ink stroke, that makes a difference. Now most people say, well, it's just a tittle. I mean, it's just a little stroke. It's, it's not even that big of a deal. Jesus says, I want you to understand that not one jot, not one tittle, not one smallest letter, not one stroke shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus is talking about here the absolute, complete authority and I believe inerrancy of the scriptures. He's saying, listen, this is no little deal. The smallest letter and the smallest stroke are significant because they will not fail. They will not pass away. They will not come to an end until time has come to an end, until heaven and earth has passed away, until there is nothing else. And when will that be? Never. 
Some had eternity there. The smallest jot, the smallest tittle will remain. Man, Jesus is saying, listen, what the word says is so important and so significant, you better hear it. As a matter of fact, he, he starts out, verse 18, for truly I say to you, the, the word there, if, if you're in King James Version, is verily, I say to you. When Jesus says something about truly I say to you, you better take notice. No other teacher in Jesus' day ever started, as far as we can tell in the literature, started his statements like that. They would say something. They would say, well, this is, this is how it is. And they would just make a statement. But Jesus uses these words to perk up our ears. And he says, verily I say to you, truly I say to you, listen to this. I'm making a point that will last for all of eternity. No part of God's word is insignificant. No part of God's word will pass away. The authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility, the truthfulness of God's word is non-negotiable. I, I'm always amazed to read. I, I remember reading, not long ago, I was reading something in, in William Barclay, and you may have used Barclay in the past. Barclay was, has tremendous tools to help in so many ways. His background in his commentaries is just phenomenal. He was a, a researcher par excellence, and, and he would research, he would give you all this background material, and I, I really appreciate Barclay for that. The only one problem with Barclay was he was a liberal and so he kind of did away with a lot of things like the miracles. When he came to the Jesus walking on water, his basic explanation was he knew where the rocks were. And so he just stepped and just did this and found the rocks and stepped on the rocks. When he came to other miracles, he found some naturalistic way of explaining them away. When he comes to the to, to the scripture, when he comes to, to this statement about Jesus saying, you know, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, Barclay had a very creative statement about that. He said, well, what Jesus means by fulfilling is that he came to give us a new appreciation for the law and the prophets. And, and he came to teach us that if we will just seek God's will in the law and seek God's will in the prophets and do our very best to live out that will and strive hard to live it every single day, then we will understand the essence of the law and the prophets. That's rank Pelagianism. You don't even know what Pelagianism is probably. But it's a, it's a, a view of the scripture that says man can save himself. It's a total work salvation. That says man can save himself if he just finds what God's will is in the scriptures, and with all his might, with all his works, he pursues it. He takes grace totally out of it. He takes the work of Christ on the cross totally out of it. You know, I'm, I'm, it's beyond me how people can do that. It's beyond me how people can, can say, well, I believe the Bible, I believe in Jesus, but... And then remove the very reason. Jesus didn't come. I want to tell you something. This is my prayer when I proclaim from this pulpit, when I pray for you every day, it's my prayer that you'll be able to read junk like that and say, that Barclay would say and say, whoa, that's heresy. That's falsehood. That's a lie. Because there's a lot of that going on. A lot of that being proposed in our world today. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill it. And I want you to know that it's all going to stand until that final day. Jesus believed in the inerrancy of Scripture and taught it. 
He says even in verse 19, he says, whoever annuls even one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We don't have time to deal with that because I want to look at one other thing here quickly. And that is verse 20. Interesting statement here. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know who the scribes and the Pharisees were? Now, we have this bad connotation of them. You know, we look at them and we think, well, they're the ones who opposed Jesus, and they did. We look at them and we say, well, they're the ones who who went to the Roman authorities and conspired to have Jesus crucified, and they did. But let me tell you what they were to the average Jew in that day. The average person in the house of Israel, they were the best. They, they lived by the law like you and I could never imagine. I mean, they really would put you and me to shame. i got to tell you, if just putting it up side by side, looking at your life, looking at my life, and looking at the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, they missed it all on what real internal faith is. They missed it when the Messiah came because they were so busy being righteous in their own strength. Why, they took the law of God that was given in the Ten Commandments and they massaged that and they dealt with that and they interpreted that and they came up with about 560 laws out of those 10. That's a pretty good return on the, on the investment, isn't it? You know, I mean, they, they took those 10 and they made 500 out of them. And friend, they worked hard to be sure they didn't violate those 10. Now, they did some mental gymnastics that had made no sense at all, but they, they got to the point where technically and legally they never, they just didn't, violate the law of God as far as people could tell. Paul said that about himself. Remember, he said, listen, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to righteousness that's found in the law, I was, I, I was above reproach. Nobody could look at me, Paul said, and say there is, is a man who's violating God's law because they would have only looked at Paul and said, there is a man who is living God's law. There is a man who is committed to keeping God's law. There is a man who will do nothing at all that he possibly can to violate what God's law is. And then Paul says, but, but when I met Christ, when I came face to face with the Messiah, when I came face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, all of that changed. All of that righteousness that I had built up, all of that self-righteousness, and all of that, all of that doing the best I could for God became absolutely rubbish. Refuse. Dung, one translation says it. Lost all its value. It became a, a horrible thing rather than a glorious thing. Because I came face to face with true righteousness and I realized that my righteousness as a Pharisee my righteousness as a man of the law was absolutely nothing so Jesus comes along and says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom 
You won't enter it. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Does he mean you better get busy and start trying your best to keep the law? Does he mean that, that God's going to take the Pharisees and he's going to stand them up here and he's going to say, okay, Bill Haynes, let's see how you match up to old Tom the Pharisee. Probably Thomas the Pharisee. No. Because you know how you'd match up? You'd flunk. You wouldn't get your diploma. You'd be out of luck. Because we just can't match up. But Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's got to be better. It's got to be more. It's got to be greater. It's got to be more effective. It's got to be more visible. It's got to be more real than the, the righteousness of the scribes of the Pharisees. Or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not be a part of my kingdom. I will not be your king. Wow. How do you get that kind of righteousness? How in the world do you get that kind of righteousness? I can't do it. I had somebody two weeks ago, and I was talking with them about their relationship with Christ and, and what was required, and, and they said, I can't do that. I said, good. We're making progress. Because you came in here thinking you could. You came in here wanting me to give you a formula. Pray this prayer. Say this something another three or four times a day. Read your Bible. And, and don't kick dogs. That came to mind because I'm keeping my son's puppy right now. And don't do things like that. And you'll be okay. That's, that's what he wanted me to say. Here's, here's a little formula for being righteous. But you can't do it. There's only one righteousness that supersedes or exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is the righteousness of Christ only. And you certainly can't live like Christ. You certainly can't. You know, that's why I got all, went back a few years ago when all the WWJD was so big. What would Jesus do? I can't ask that question because I'm not him. And if I could figure out what he would do, chances are I can't do it. It ought to be WDJD. What did Jesus do? You know what he did? He lived the law and fulfilled it perfectly. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. No sin. And then... This one who fulfilled the law and the prophets had no sin in his life. Paul says he became sin. Why? That's the big why. Why did he go to that cross? Why did he take the, the wrath of God upon his life? Why did he receive what I should have received on that cross? Why did he who knew no sin become sin? so that you might become the righteousness of God. That's a great exchange that took place on the cross, folks. 
There was an exchange that took place between you and him. If you're a believer in Christ at the cross, your faith in Christ means that on that cross, he took your sin, he took it all away, and he bore all the penalty for it right there. And then that second exchange came the other way. You know what an exchange is? If, if I say, hey, I've got, a, I've got a baby bottle here, Matt, I'd like to exchange it for that book. No, he won't do it. Thank God Jesus wasn't like Matt. You make an exchange. He took our sin on himself. And then he gives us and he clothes us and he perfects us in the righteousness of Christ. What Jesus is saying here is I came and fulfilled the law and went to the cross as a sacrifice as what I love that in, in Isaiah that I read as a call to worship this morning. Isaiah 12, he, he was angry but he forgave. He was angry but his, sin, his anger was turned away. That's the whole concept of propitiation that Paul talks about in Romans and John talks about in 1 John. It's a great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin. Doesn't mean he committed sin. It means he took it upon himself voluntarily that we who are in Christ might become the very righteousness of God. One of the great old hymns, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You know, that, that, the hymn writer there captured the essence of what Jesus is saying here, and that is, where is your foundation? Where is your strength? Where is your security? Is it in your righteousness? Then, folks, it better exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, and I've got news for you, it doesn't. If your foundation is on that, you're most to be pitied. If your foundation is in Christ... On Christ, the solid rock I stand. His righteousness, His purpose, His sacrifice, His life for my life, to give me life. Then the kingdom of heaven you may enter. Kingdom of heaven you may enter in. But without it, without His righteousness, never will see the only hope of our being saved the only hope of entering the kingdom of heaven is in Christ alone it's in Christ alone it's not in your good deeds it's not in the fact that you're a member of Grace Baptist Church or any other church it's not that you've walked an aisle been through baptismal waters and and not that you've, been, uh, you've come to the Lord's table every time we've had the Lord's table. It's, it's not that you have prayed a lot and read your Bible a lot. It's not that and you may do all those things, but that's not your hope. Those all point to the hope. And the hope is the righteousness of Christ. The hope is the foundation of Jesus Christ. Where is your hope today? Where is your security today? Where is your life today? Where is it? Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for the foundation that is real. I thank you, Lord, that we can stand on that truth and know that truth without a doubt. Father, I thank you that Jesus, in this sermon, points to his view of Scripture, and his view of Scripture ought to be our view of Scripture. We may not understand it all, but boy, we better not ever deny any of it. Father, teach us that. Lord, I pray for men and women who are here this morning that don't know you. I pray your Holy Spirit will work in their heart and life and draw them to faith in Christ. Pray, Father, for others that, Lord, have just disbelieved you, doubted your truth and doubted your word. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit will bring them to see the reality and the truth of your word. Father, be glorified in our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.